Welcome to The Rest is Education. This week we've got a special episode on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and really what's happened to them and we're going to be discussing that with two special guests, our first guests on the podcast. We've got Helen Sundaram of the Kindness Bank and Eve Jardine-Young of Cheltenham Ladies College, so our first head. Um, and so ladies, would you care to introduce yourself? Uh, Eve, do you want to go first? Sure. Hi, Ross. Hi, Helen. Lovely to be um, having an opportunity to have a conversation with you about things that, that matter a lot to, to all of us, I know. So, Ross, I've um, I've been the principal at Cheltenham Ladies for 12 years now, um, but I was born and raised in, in Malawi in Central Africa. And I think as I've grown older, um, I've realised just what a profoundly important influence my childhood was on me. I don't think when you're young that you quite realise how impressionable you are um, and how your childhood can be a source of great inspiration for you in your uh, uh, later life. So I then came to school in the UK for my A-levels as a boarder. I trained in industry as an engineer and um, graduated in sort of the 1990s, very, very keen to work in the area of in the environment and environmental engineering. And so although I then switched and came into teaching and into education, I feel that all of this work has always been a very big part of my 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 formative years and things that really have driven my passion of what matters in the world um, and so it's you know it's actually a wonderful opportunity to thank you to talk about it through that educational lens for uh, hopefully trying to get some uh, motivation and traction under us for the years to come. Absolutely and I, I think one of the reasons that I, I thought you'd be the perfect person to invite on the pod is because you're you're showing that through through your action at Cheltenham Ladies and you'll be filling us in uh, more in, in due course but um, Helen do you mind introducing yourself next? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's lovely to be with you today, both of you. Wonderful. Um, and yeah, I've worked for uh, around 30 years and uh, on a number of occasions, I've experienced unkind treatment from others and I've always found it upsetting um, and I've never really understood it. Um, and when it happened again last year, it was deeply traumatic and um, I needed to leave and do something positive to recover from the experience. Um, and I decided to focus on kindness because I feel so strongly that it's needed. And, um, you know, particularly as we face so many difficult social and environmental challenges, never more so than right now, you know, I really feel that we need to have a kind outlook to try to address those problems. Um, and at the time when I left my work, um, it was the run up to COP26. My husband works in sustainability and he really encouraged me in that direction. Um, and I actually realized that I knew quite a lot about sustainability. It's kind of in my blood. I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in rural Gloucestershire, actually, Eve, not too far from where you are. Um, and everything was homemade or homegrown. Um, if something broke, my dad fixed it. You know, uh, we had loads of chipped china around the place Saturday mornings were spent doing the jigsaw puzzle of putting these things back together again and gluing them um, and we didn't we didn't have much um, and we needed things to last because stuff was expensive and it wasn't readily available 
So that was kind of my upbringing in the 70s and the 80s. And I realized that I kind of knew quite a lot about sustainability, apart from my husband, who would regularly talk about the United Nations and the sustainable development goals. So, you know, I'd kind of learned quite a lot from him. Uh, But what we realized was that not many people know about them. Not many people know about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And they are kind of our global to-do list. You know, they're really colorful, really easy to identify what they're trying to to draw our attention to. Um, And they're really, you know, what we need to follow to solve these difficult social and environmental problems, climate change you know, the inequalities, poverty, they're the, the real three biggies, aren't they? Um, and there's a need, I feel, in fact, there's an obligation, I think, to bring this learning to the heart of education. You know, these children are inheriting this world and we owe them, uh, we, we really owe them that opportunity to learn now because they're mini consumers, aren't they? And uh, we might call it a climate crisis, but it really has come about because of overconsumption. You know, I talk about it being an overconsumption crisis. And um, I think we owe it to our children to to teach them about how to care for and nurture our world, which, you know, for future generations, which, of course, is, you know, the definition of sustainability. So I set up the Kindness Bank, uh, inspiring the currency of kindness to people and the planet, bringing sustainability and kindness education to schools and We do in-person workshops and assemblies and careers events and consult with school leaders and help them really embed kindness and sustainability to the heart of of, uh, school life Um, and trying to make it as easy as possible for schools. You know, it's it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because it's not on the curriculum, really. Um, And, you know, where do you go for your resources? School, you know, teachers are so overloaded. They've got so much to do. And so I'm really trying to make it easy for them. And I've kind of I've launched these online recorded workshops so that they can just quickly press play. And, they're, you know, and there's a bit of learning to fill a PSHE lesson or, or for the eco council or something like that. So so that's kind of where I am <laughs> why I'm doing and, and, it. And actually, you're, you know, the, the work you do not only do you fully believe it and you're incredibly passionate about it, but but you're absolutely right. You you have made it as easy as possible for schools to, to then t- teach the, the SDGs. Mm-hmm. And um, we've worked together. You, you've come in to do some work at, at my current school. Uh, you've been in a few times. You've been a, a huge help to us there. And mm-hmm. you're actually coming in again uh, very shortly. So yeah. you know, that, that ongoing relationship is I think useful for the pupils as well to have an outside voice rather than it just always being mm. an internally driven um, you know series of lessons or, or project or whatever it might be um, but you've obviously seen what's going on in terms of the teaching of sustainability where where I am at the moment mm-hmm. but, um, and and so have I <laughs> um, yeah but, but but I don't really have a great deal of insight in terms of what's being done elsewhere, whereas yeah. you, um, you work with a great deal of, of different schools. And I was wondering whether you could give us an insight into the, the status quo, if you like. Yeah, sure. Ross. Yeah. I mean, I've uh, I've I've only been around for a year. So, uh, you know, kind of last spring and, and summer term, we're really busy visiting schools. And uh, I really wanted to be in uh, state schools as well as independent schools. I feel it's really important that um 
all children get the opportunity to find out about these challenges and try to solve the problem. This is about empowerment. You know, this is about giving children the opportunity to work together and come up with ideas and solutions. So um, one of the first schools I worked with, actually, was uh, Kingston Grammar School and um, working with Stephen Leheck and his team there. And, you know, they've really embraced kindness at the heart of what they're doing. And I find it very inspiring what they're doing. Um, they've created a kindness council and it's all founded on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and they're running that in the school and are really trying to really use that as the, the um, central part of their development plan, really. Um, and uh, I've worked with them on a couple of events. I did a careers event with them and, um, and an assembly and, and they very kindly sponsored the online bank of resources to a state school, which, you know, is a really nice way that they can sort of support their local schools in their area. And so I've worked with them over time and, you know, hopefully we'll continue to do so. Um, I uh, work with St. Paul's boys and girls. I really wanted to help them bring together two schools. The girls and boys didn't know each other before. And um, I made sure that they were put into diverse little groups. We always I always try and get some group work going to get the children thinking about what the problems are themselves rather than me feeding it to them um, and thinking about the solutions once we've had a look at the goals and explored those. And uh, at St Paul's, we they put together um, diverse teams, mixing the boys and girls up, trying to get neurodiversity in there because it's so, so important um, that, um, you know, we have that uh, diversity of thought in teams. Uh, we know so much about the the, the superpower that it brings, you know. Uh, it's really valuable to have different ways of thinking of things and different ways of looking at the world. So bringing schools together is another way I think is really important. And I encourage any school, any independent schools that I work with to bring in their local state school um, to sort of do a joint um, event with them. Uh, so I've also worked with Heathfield in Ascot and we did a, a really nice event for um, year sevens and eights. Um, obviously worked with you, Ross, um, and uh, a couple of schools in Kew, actually, Broomfield House. And they, he, um, Adam Anstey recently posted on everything that he's doing and, and he's doing a lot, you know, really to bring uh, sustainability into the heart and getting external speakers in. Um, and I ran a whole um, sort of program of, of workshops and assemblies for, for all different year groups. So, you know, different, differently pitched for the different year groups. Um, so, so yeah, so I kind of work with them. And I've worked with uh, oh, Normanhurst as well in Chingford as another school. And again, they're, they're sort of junior and senior. So we went right the way through to year 10. Year 11s were focused on GCSEs at the time. In the state sector, I've worked with some sort of year 10s and uh, some year 7s. And, you know, I think in the state sector particularly, it's very, very difficult for them. You know, they're reliant on teachers knowing about the sustainable development goals, knowing about sustainability uh, and having an interest in it and being able to have the time to create the lessons. You know, I think that's and, and also having the time to, to to fit the lessons into the curriculum. You know, it's they're really tight on time and, you know, they're very overloaded. So I think it's particularly difficult for those uh, teachers in the state sector um, sometimes they've got eco councils, maybe in the state sector or the independent schools. And, you know, that's an opportunity really to kind of do it almost as an external club. So it's really it's quite mixed. Some schools are doing it more than others. 
worked with Unicorn School as well, actually in Kew, and we I helped the head there get um, the sustainable development goals to the heart of her development plan. So yeah, so I think schools are really trying to bring it in and really um, showing an interest in it. Definitely, they they kind of know they need to do it. But I think this is the same with the business world. You know, people know they need to do it, but they don't necessarily know how to bring sustainability in uh, and what to do. So. I think it's the same with schools. And and like I say, I think everybody's very overloaded with delivering the curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. And and really, the the granular is something I I want to explore. And when you say um, bringing bringing this into school development plans, I I was at Framlingham College recently, and they have their vision 2025. And I know it's, it's a a key part of that and 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 then I was actually at another school uh, fairly recently and they had a very similar uh, vision document if you like but over the course of a conversation it became apparent that a fairly key member of staff uh, wasn't wasn't aware of that vision and and it wasn't that new and so I Mm -hmm. think you know we should be aware particularly when we we see this marketing it it might not have drip fed you know down down the pyramid as it were. Um, Eve, would you would you mind telling us what's being done at the moment at Cheltenham Ladies in, in terms of the sustainable development goals and, and how they're being taught? Sure, Ross, thanks. Um, so the age range that we have are effectively key stages three, four and five, so 11 to 18. We have um, both the IB diploma and A-levels available in the sixth form as parallel Um, course programs. So I think one of the big themes, Ross, that I would make as an observation of the country as a whole is that the primary schools and prep school aged schools, I think, are doing a tremendous job in this space, actually. Um, There's, it's very rare to come across a school that is just totally blind to this, or, you know, (laughs) might as well be back in 1980. Um, There's some really committed activity there's a lot of passion there's a lot of project-based work you walk around lots of schools and you will see the visual evidence of that on classroom walls through art even sculpture Um, and you just do get this feeling that even though the kids are younger and they don't always have the sophistication of language and jargon and terminology that might then come on stream later on with GCSE formal teaching programs if you like that a lot of this is common sense and just noticing and understanding interdependence of effects. So you're never too young to feel and experience those things. And what we're getting arriving in our schools in the secondary sector increasingly is, you know, are generations of young people arriving in year seven or year nine who've got, you know, they've got quite a lot of momentum already. They don't, we're not starting from zero. They're their existing knowledge base is quite high. The challenge for the secondary schools, though, is that it's not always uniform. So if I give you just an example of our current school, we've got 880 pupils, but they have come from 600 different schools. So... (laughs) You could you could you could speak to one pupil and find that they're an absolute expert on the SDGs, you know, absolutely reel them off, recite them, mnemonics to to remember them all, because there are a lot of them. I think that is a challenge. Um, but you know, wh- where do you start so that you don't 
bore the people who are already ahead of the curve. Think, oh, we've done this already. Please, let's not do this again. You know, we're ready to do more than this now. But others really don't have that framework in place. So I, w- I would say, Ross, one of the challenges that we are looking at is how do you meet the kids in a place that continues to engage them? How do you then achieve that uniform baseline of grasp across cohorts on which you can then build with much more confidence that it's not going to end up with very, you know, it's very patchy? Um, and then also the interesting thing that happens in our educational system, isn't it, in this country anyway, where people are allowed to choose to drop things, drop subjects. <laughs> so I think when you're younger and you are sort of a willing and compliant member of your year group and you just you go to the lessons you're told to go to and, and, and this wonderful education is, is presented to you, but, you know, very crudely herded about like sheep, so you don't get as much choice and therefore, actually, you can do quite a lot to bring that uniformity of grasp and understanding. And the shared experiences, the shared, do you all remember when we did this? You know, peer group can become powerful influencers and powerful educators of each other. And then as we begin to uh, grow up and disperse our academic interests towards, am I going to do languages or geography or, you know, there's a wonderful, it's always been the case, hasn't it? The wonderful collection of subjects that suits the presentation of this material. In fact, it's almost the natural home. It's geography, it's economics, possibly a bit of history and politics in there in the hands of the right teachers who can draw attention to some of these themes you know if you look often the scramble for africa colonization was about securing land minerals um agriculture food trade you know that these some of these themes you can actually find your way to them in any subject any academic subject but they are the natural they are the most obvious natural home in some of the subjects so Ross longest answer in the world to your very brief and perceptive question which was how are we doing it here so one we we don't think we've got it right yet I would say I think we in schools like ours where I've got 200 day girls and 600 or so boarders Um, you have got the boarding population with you for longer. And so the opportunities to do more and perhaps just have that extra time, weekends, evenings, so you've got a slightly bigger canvas to work on in terms of your opportunity to do things with with pupils. But you don't want a two-speed economy in a school where the day girls and the boarders have, you know, asymmetric experiences. (laughs) This is not the ideal. So we take advantage really then of the co-curricular or extracurricular program where one way or another children I we think children need to encounter these things in all sorts of different places through different routes in more of a matrix rather than a, a straight line so that what they don't do is think oh this belongs in this subject only you know and if I don't do geography past the age of 16 well that was the last time I'm going to listen to that unless I watch the David Attenborough documentaries and I you know and I come across it in the wider media so we've got this bit of an elliptical journey I think where the primary schools and the prep schools are doing a grand job of uniform information passion ignition traction if you like too many ends um you know fabulous kids arriving who actually have got quite a lot of knowledge and innate curiosity and a love of the natural world and an appreciation or wish to save it. 
Then complexity comes in, curricular choice starts to happen, dispersion of academic experience, and you therefore need to have much more intentionality in the secondary school space to ensure that every pupil cannot escape this, but if they don't actually have a, a law of unintended consequences backfire by making people feel that it's being drilled into them in a joyless manner, yeah. such that as soon as they escape the clutches of formal education, they start to put some distance between it and themselves and the way they live and their life choices. So it's, it's how do you find the joy? How do you find that way to your pluralism of multitudinous approaches and make sure that people are encountering it in different ways and building almost like a spiral on, you know, a crude wisdom and understanding? Yeah. I could say more. I dare not. I'll stop there for now. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's fascinating. You know, that, that is going to be such a challenge, isn't it, across the board? And what you've mentioned there about, you know, optional subjects at senior school, uh, obviously, we're aware that this new GCSE is coming in soon in natural history, but it will be optional. And so, you know, in the same, I, I'm a history teacher by training. And so the, you know, the problems that we have in society, you know, where we, we might pin those on a lack of history education, for instance, uh, we were, were presumably going to have that problem going forward if you know, we only provide this uh, form of education in terms of the, the goals being taught in an optional forum. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think that that has to definitely be part of the discussion, how we how we solve that. And I, I like your matrix approach. And I think when you when you made the point about any subject making the sustainable development goals relevant, that is totally correct because here we we've got the farm and we've also got these uh, sustainability lessons for for certain year groups, but but even in history we we do teach a, a lot of what is really environmentalism and we look at land use through time and we look at the consequences of certain economic and social shifts and you know it it really is so apparent to the children now because they're learning about it in other settings. And it's far more apparent, I would say, than when we were at school, or certainly when I was at school. And and I think subjects are beginning to blur the lines. So I think that, you know, that, that has to be a good thing. Mm. Ross, I don't know if I might very cheekily just add two very quick postscripts. postscripts. One references the, um, the announcement of this intention, this invitation to the boards to deliver, to develop the natural history curriculum. So we, I did have a very excited day. You know, there was a day of, 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 of eruption of joy in my heart. I thought, hooray, you know, something. But interestingly, A, this was announced by a Secretary of State for Education whose tenure was definitely longer than the letters, but it was, you know, it wasn't long. And we are now another person and then another person beyond that. So what's always interesting in schools, isn't it, is that who's holding the baton? Was that baton passed like a relay race or was that a baton that was a one-runner baton? Uh, And how much stickability is that really going to have in our landscape of offerings? But also that they they can make these sorts of announcements. But unless the exam boards, which are private businesses, respond to the clarion call and decide to write specifications and compose methods of assessment 
that are, that are going to also appeal to schools and schools are going to want to ha- sign kids up to it and teach them, then actually nothing will happen in that space for quite some time. Um, so it's, it's an exciting moment, at least a real statement of intention, but it's going to require quite a lot of the free market forces of capitalism to respond into that space, albeit public sector have given us a clarion call. Um, if anything meaningful and you know is going to happen, and it not be seen as some sort of mishmash of biology, basic business and economics, some ethics thrown in, and some geography, and so that. If you don't, if you are doing triple science and geography, what's the point of doing this as well? You yeah. know, I think there's a debate to be had there, which I'm sure those um, who live in that kind of academic uh, specification creation space will be already be thinking very hard about. And and I think city and guilds are the exam body, aren't they? And and so if there is no demand or not enough demand, then there's limited incentive for them to actually provide the qualification. And we end up in this cycle where things aren't available. And so I think, you know, looking at um, curriculum design and, and who does that, um, obviously, there are multiple options there and and I know Helen obviously much of your work is about curriculum design but I was just going to touch upon actually my my awareness briefly so I I happened to be at a a pretty forward-thinking school in London in 2015 and we were visited by Hannah Cameron of Project Everyone which was Richard Curtis's creation just at the time when the Millennium Development Goals had been announced to replace the Sorry, the Millennium Development Goals had just been replaced by the Sustainable Development Goals. And she really wanted teachers to have input on the design of lessons that could be taught in any setting, ideally internationally. And it was a very exciting time. And really, we we developed a, a whole series of lessons, really one-offs to touch on each, uh, to touch on each goal. And um, years later our school was still very much using those resources and and perhaps improving them and they were just part of the cultural fabric of the school and and it was present everywhere the pupils were were very much on board as were the staff and it was a really really um core element of the the provision there not just sort of part of a phse program to be ticked and and i suppose my my question is, is that the same everywhere? I don't think it necessarily is, but but I don't have the, the experience to just really clarify that. And um, I wondered whether, if it isn't the case everywhere, whether there's a link to, it's been touched upon a little bit uh, already by, by you, Eve, but, but government intention. And, you know, when we were designing these lessons, it was at a time when we had a, an international development budget of of two and a half percent of GDP. We had a, a department for international development. We had Rory Stewart pushing these things, and um, we obviously don't have those things since twenty twenty. And I think our international development budget has dropped to to half a percent. And if I were to take this out of the educational sphere just very briefly, I know a, a, a colleague who is now in Nairobi working on. Um, infrastructure projects and these projects they they didn't happen overnight and so Eve when you mentioned about batons being passed the consequences are quite severe so 
Uh, in Nairobi at the moment, they're moving the railway station from the suburbs into the heart of the city. There's a huge international development project around that. And of course, DFID funding was, was cut sort of midway through that project. So the knock-on consequences are massive. And if you sort of replicate that around the world, uh, there, there are really big uh, sort of knock-ons from, from this. But, but to bring it back into the educational setting, if we're, if we're not teaching it, then really what, what will happen to the goals? Sort of what is that provision? I think, you know, your experience, Eve, of the, the girls coming in is that generally, you know, they, you said you thought primaries and preps do a tremendous job. But um, Helen, is that something you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for the schools that I've worked in, obviously. And, um, you know, there is, uh, and, and what I'm seeing actually, I suppose, on on the networks, on LinkedIn, social media and things like that, um, is, you know, people are wanting to embrace it. They're wanting to bring it in. They don't necessarily know how or they're doing uh, bits here and there. You know, they're, they're very focused on um, biodiversity. I think schools do a really good job of trying to um, bring that about, um, trying to, you know, put in more planting and sort of look after pollinators and wildlife, maybe beekeeping and things like that, um, growing veg and things. And that's that's fantastic. Um, I sort of I feel really strongly that the social uh, challenges need to, you know, sort of looking at the social challenges. And actually, sorry, having said that, you know, a lot of schools are supporting local good causes, social causes, you know, to try and help people in their local community. So that is happening. Um, I just think that sort of understanding of the links between the environmental challenges and the social challenges. And that's what I think I well, I really try and get across in in the sessions that I teach. And I don't know how much of that is going on in schools. Um, you know, like I said, I think they're really focusing on environmental, looking after our uh, looking after nature and our world. And there's not necessarily that understanding, I think, in general about how climate change is impacting people. You know, migration is such a huge problem and, and obviously massively in the news at the moment. You know, and, and three times more people are migrating because of climate change than because of war. And as I say all the time, you know, people wouldn't leave their homes if they didn't have to, it's the last resort. They really don't want to leave. But when, you know, these indigenous farmers are losing their crops one year because of drought and then they're losing them the next year because of flooding, you know, they can't sell any, they've got no crops to sell. They can't have a livelihood. You know, they, they're having to leave their homes to find a more temperate climate where they can grow crops and earn a living, you know, Um so I really feel strongly that and the, and the goals really bring that together. They bring those social and environmental challenges well together and visually. Um, you know, we can see how people are not being paid fairly for the work they do. And 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 I like to talk about that as well. You know, we sort of look at the supply chain of goods. And you know, if we're thinking about buying something that's brand new in a shop, in a low cost retailer, uh, for say, you know, a top for four ninety nine. You know, let's look at that supply chain. Let's look at all those people uh, and all those organisations, from the designer, you know, uh, to the cotton farmer who's who's running the cotton farm and the people picking the cotton. How much do we think they're going to be paid if if I am buying that top? For four ninety nine, you know, we've got to pay the factory owner. We've got to pay the factory workers. You've got to pay the shipping company, all the people that work in the shops, you know, just trying to think about the human cost 
of our consumption, of our, you know, fairly irresponsible, low cost, high volume consumption. Um, so uh, I'm not sure whether I've answered your question. No, no, there. I think, I think what, one thing that came to mind there was, you know, <laughs> around the same time as Hannah Cameron was was uh, working on these lessons and, and really how to teach some of the things you've just mentioned and mm. you know, awareness of supply chains and things. Um, that that summer, 2015, I, I was fortunate enough to take a, a sustainable development expedition down to Tanzania. And I took people from young people, 17 to 24, from around the world. And we were part funded by WaterAid. And we ended up actually in a very rural community in, in northern Tanzania on a SWASH project, a, a um, school water and uh, sanitation and healthcare project with multiple aims. But one of those actually was teaching the sustainable development goals at a time they were right at the beginning of their, their journey. You know, they've just been designed. But we found ourselves talking to senior school pupils in this incredibly remote community and they knew so much about the the Millennium Development Goals. Mm-hmm. They've been taught an awful lot about them. And it just struck me that actually these children, these young adults actually, were far more aware of the problems facing the world really that, than actually people their age or lots of people their age in the developed world. Mm-hmm. And and of course, when I was there, that region was was suffering its second continuous year of drought and and as you say, you know, people don't move because necessarily they want to. It's if they can't feed themselves. I think I think these these peoples they were very aware. Helen, I don't know if this ties into some of what you were sharing as well, but it seems to me that there are sort of three models or three ways of looking down the telescope at this situation that I've certainly found helpful when talking to pupils who haven't necessarily all had the same academic background and experiences. The first is Maslow's hierarchy of needs model, because it is visually relatively simple. And you do have this concept of a hierarchy where in any day, in any setting, human beings will have different assessments of how important certain things are to them that day and if you're in the lower bandings of that Maslow's hierarchy of need model you're trapped in a life where just having safety of roof over your head just knowing that if you've got a roof over your head this week that it's not going to be washed away by the floods next week as well as your cattle as well as your tops beautiful topsoil off your fields and your crops etc so you've got a significant proportion haven't you of the world's population whose whose conditions of life regardless of their level of education or understanding are actually caught in this gravitational down downdraft to the bottom few levels of that Maslow's hierarchy of need and then you've got a first world at the top you know enjoying some skirmishes aren't we and we count ourselves as those very privileged individuals to be thinking about self-actualization and you know fulfillment and meaning and and you know having psychological safety as well as physical safety which is lower down um so although it it can be i mean i first encountered that in a very kind of business context but you can 
translate that to my life age 12 you know what is my massive what's my hierarchy of needs where where where's my dog my pet my relationships with my parents my grandma my dreams my future ambitions you know it's a concept which is actually i i have found quite helpful ross to begin to make what can feel quite abstract concepts more accessible and more connected there's a way into a conversation with me my life decisions I make might actually have benefit I can relate to somebody else us and them who is we and maybe at the very very kernel of this theoretical tensions between the sort of the socialist models of life with lower levels of inequality and then where capitalism in its unfettered free market forces form takes you with widen not just big inequalities but widening inequalities over time left uninterfered with they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and worse so that this is actually quite complex stuff isn't it it's quite complex and you can see pupils when they really get enough pieces of the jigsaw they've done some geography they've done the food web the carbon cycle they've done the bio diversity stuff they've 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 listened they've looked with their eyes they're starting to process things taking it on board they start to understand the complexity and then everything starts to be more fitting into its place but how you simplify that back to the fundamental question was how what does it look like in schools how do you introduce this material how do you make a start that is not overwhelming i think recognizing that if this was easy it would be happening already it's hard (laughs) but simplification is okay it's better than not doing it at all and one thing covid taught us which maybe we haven't yet made the most of i don't know i just lob this into the ring as a as an idea but covid because it was epidemiology it was infection it was you know it's been a biohazard that we've actually had to all deal with this is going to be a generation that has grown up through their absolutely critical and formative years in education experiencing what it means to be interdependent so it doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how you know how many miles away if you want to live quote normally in society with some social interaction with going into the retail areas going to a concert going to a festival whatever it is you want to do with your life but not be completely isolated and lonely you have to encounter risk and in those many 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 months where we had no vaccines in the world no vaccines we had no lateral flow tests available now you just go to the chemist you know daub and swab we're forever shoving things up our noses to swab ourselves you know (laughs) what generation where that's normal i mean we wouldn't wouldn't believe this to be possible four years ago but we've got a generation who understand profoundly what I do or don't do affects you and your family. If I put my face coverings on, if I'm prepared not to breathe all over you, if I actually wash my hands properly, if I do my test and I don't break the guidelines that I should have been doing and pretend because it suits me that I'm going to do my own thing anyway and then you infect 50 people, right? People's behaviour the, at the level of the individual has profoundly multiplying and knock-on effects to others and you are also on the receiving end of the decisions of other people now helen to your point we've just we're living with covid still 
we're in it. We've got generations who for months and months have had their lives affected by this. This is what interdependence means, which means if I consume in this way, in an unsustainable pattern, those people over there are not going to have a country. You know, if this happens there, then that this will happen over there. We've, maybe we've got a referencing now, an experiential referencing that is not, oh, at some point there's going to be doom and gloom and rising sea levels and maybe I'll be dead by then and it won't be my problem. You know, we're actually, we're living in one something now. Have we, have we made the most of that to actually say, imagine this could be a parallel, this could be an example? I don't know. Just a thought, Ross, just a thought. No, I think that that was really powerful, and um, I I couldn't couldn't agree more. I think um, I think that's really actually what we need to move on and talk about now. Because quite frankly, if if we give us an assembly on say plastic waste, but we're still using plastic cups three times a week or however often single use plastics, then the children will will soon identify that actually, you know, we we can just continue operating in this post-truth society and, and burying our heads in the sand and, and that it is just paying lip service and, and that actually, you know, we, we need to start demonstrating on a physical level that we're taking this seriously. Mm. And, and I was going to ask Eve, you know, you're, you're putting together, well, a very serious programme of investment at Cheltenham Ladies I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about that. Sure, Ross. And I, th- I think it goes back to what you've said there really about calling us out. You know, let's call ourselves out before our pupils do. <laughs> let's make sure we're not preaching one thing and doing something completely different. And there is the disconnect and that can lead to cynicism. It can lead to scepticism, computer eye rolling well those in authority never really do what they say, do they? And do they mean it? So it's not, you're absolutely right. It's not just that the risk of, of hypocrisy, but it's also the risk of alienation of that faith and trust that actually we can rely on each other to be better, to do things better, to, to, to build the future that we think is there to be grasped. So, to hold ourselves to account um, and recognise also that schools are like a very, very big airport terminal, aren't they? They're, everyone's always on the move through them. We are the permanent, we are the staff in the schools, but actually the kids on this gentle little travelator that moves up, moves always through us and past us. So they're always in a state of dynamic equilibrium and flux. So you, you're almost having to revisit these things very regularly, aren't you? So what we've done is we've started with finance and we've thought, do we have any funds at all, the reserves of the college, the endow- if we have endowed funds of any description, which, you know, I have to be honest with you and say are not plentiful, but whatever they are, have we got them invested inadvertently or just because it's a blind spot we haven't asked our investment advisors with portfolios of shares in companies that are fossil fuel brigade, let's say? for sure hand. So looking at the environmental credentials as well as the ethical credentials of any any financial partners, if you like, who are connected to the long-term assets of the school, number one. And we have made a switch in the last three to four years and we've moved that portfolio. Now, what that might mean is you move to a slightly lower yield and you have to make some trade-offs, but 
actually understanding what those trade-offs are and being willing to make those trade-offs is part of the story that we need to tell in the educational settings. There is usually a price to be paid. But if we don't want to pay that price, if we want to pay price equals zero, we're going to end up with a status quo. So <laughs> it's okay. This is normal. Ask what, understand what the trade-offs are and then ask yourself, are you willing to make them or not? Um, number one. Number two, we've then looked at our estate. So we've got 36 acres of um, land, but it's all in parcels. We were dispersed estate in the middle of Cheltenham, Regency Town. And we've got buildings that are as old as sort of mid-19th century, right through to five years ago, and everything in between. So we've got some very old, very leaky buildings that have been difficult to heat, single pane glass, conservation order, heritage plans, stained glass. We can't do this, we can't do that. <gasps> Challenging. And then we've got other sort of 1960s, 1970s, really, that we can do a lot with in terms of insulation, proper looking at the roofs, looking at the, at the glazing, looking at the whole heat and energy use, if you like, of that building as the built environment. And working with our architects um, for on a long-term estates master plan, whilst we are we are aiming, we've settled very ambitiously, set ourselves, you know, carbon zero by 2030. But there could even be parts of our estate that are carbon positive by then, i.e. we're actually generating clean green electricity off parts of the estate to sell back into the grid or to ideally store in our own battery bank somewhere that we can then draw on at other times of peak, off peak, etc. So there's a lot of engineering involved there. But the architects we're working with, I would say, have gone on, a, have been so transformative because they work with clients all the time and they bring that external view. And they've taught me two things in the last six months. Number one, it is now going out of vogue to knock things down and build better. Because in the knocking down, think of the carbon footprint. Think of what you're doing. Oh, we'll knock down that awful old building and we'll put a lovely new green passive house, you know, fabulous environmental credentials. But you have of the new build and its use. But what have you done with all the concrete, the, the steel, everything that you've just used? It's a very, very expensive actually environmentally an expensive way of looking at um, adapting your plant and be thinking more creatively, more imaginatively, more innovatively about how to convert, how to refurbish, how to make do with what you've got, but adapt as opposed to just knock it down and put something new and shiny there instead. So there's an, there's an attitude of mind in the construction industry that I think is undergoing a really interesting paradigm shift. It's a bit more challenging. It's a bit more untidy to think the way through. It's not quite as neat. But actually, if that's honest and that's the correct way of looking at it all, carbon-wise, we've got to get our heads around it and we've got to become more comfortable in that space. The second attitude of mind that we're we're being educated about is for people they, they're working with a, a school actually who have got some really really serious old buildings you know as in very special very extensive and very difficult to make carbon carbon proof now and they've said think about 
how people used to move with the snow lines, move with the weather, move with the seasons, move with the animals, move with the grass that's growing, move with the food supplies. Human beings have been inherently nomadic and they have been, we've always been able to be itinerant in our you know, ancient roots, our primal wiring <laughs> isn't to necessarily forever stay in one place. Private property rights have made us do that, haven't they? But how about you think of your building and ha- buildings and how you use them differently? So what is your summer weather occupancy of your buildings? What is your winter weather occupancy of your buildings? Do you shut some of it down and turn the heating off when it is very expensive to heat it in the winter? Because that's the leaky bit. That's the old bit. And you you huddle more, you concentrate more, you change how your density of occupancy in your own buildings shifts around according to the seasons, the temperatures, the weather patterns, to make your energy consumption patterns different if you can't change the building. Or well, it's going to cost you £30 million, you can't afford to change the building. You don't just roll in and say, oh dear, we'll have to put up with it. It's every different way of thinking about it. So, Ross, I actually feel that as well as Um, You know, it's been committing to the intention that has opened some different conversations that we've never had before about thinking about ourselves and how we interact with our built environment and the activities, times of day that we do things and how many people are here or there. And actually taking the girls and their parents on, on that journey to share that narrative with them. Guess what? Nobody's got the answers yet. We're working it out. You know, you've got a voice here. If you can think of something that's better than this, what do you think about this? Is okay. And quite often in schools, we we come from the premise of we're the experts, we know the answer, and we're here to teach you. <laughs> Actually, this is something for society to get to grips together. And therefore, we with let's lower the guards a bit and let's learn how to be uncertain and imperfect together, but committed to finding a better way through. Hopefully, uh, lots of school leaders were listening because I think that what you've just touched upon is is the answer, isn't it? Ultimately, it's about thinking about what we have, how we can best use it. And, you know, to, to use a very local example, in the summer term here, everyone wants to be outside, but there are only two outdoor teaching spaces, really. And well, the temperature is only going to be going one way. So, you know, how are we future-proofing our immediate environment? And and then going slightly further afield, I've just come back from a, an expedition up to the Noida Peninsula and the, the village Inverie there was just in the news. They are quite famous for having signs everywhere saying, don't worry about turning the lights off because we'd rather you were able to see what you were doing. And obviously it's quite dark up there for quite a lot of the day at the moment. But um, the reason for that is because they've just they've fronted the, the cost of a, a, a new and improved hydroelectric dam and they are using what they have to future proof their own community. And I think whilst we might not all have a lock nearby we um, or a lake, we, we might have some sort of natural resource which we can we can adapt and, and hopefully that will help, particularly in environments where as you say, Eve, schools might have tracts of land, they might have endowments, which might include tracts of land. Um, and, and that might be an independent school, sort of seemingly independent school solution. But even on a smaller scale, you know, technology's moved on. I know you were down in Cornwall recently looking at, I think, was it ground source heat pumps 
I don't know what the outcome of that um, exploratory exercise was, but perhaps you'll um, be kind enough to tell us. But but you know, technology has changed so much that we can we can make some changes, but but then you know there is a, a degree of investment involved, and it might be that state schools feel they don't have or, or you know don't don't have that immediate access to funds. Well, Ross, exciting, and and Helen, forgive me if I'm talking too too much in this particular segment um but the ross i think because we have got so much cost push pressure now in our business models um and the independent schools absolutely you know if you look at the funding per pupil it is favorable in comparison to the funding per pupil that the state schools have to run on most of the time but we also have to then absorb any of that inflation, things like food when you've got 600 full borders, food inflation going at 16, 17, 18, 20%. Um, you know, that that you're on your own there and you're on your own to try to build up enough reserves to do any of the major long-term school improvement, which would not be funded by the capital project funds of the government. So, it is still an enormously daunting um, expense list of expensive things, isn't it? It's 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 daunting, but I think again, what seems to happen is if you commit yourself with intention, people start talking to you about solutions, and with thinking very hard. Uh, well. If you back yourself as a school and think we can afford to do long-term thinking, as a private householder, as a short-term, small and vulnerable business, you might think, well, can I afford to take a 10-year view? If the payback period on solar panels is seven years, eight years, oh my God, that seems like an eternity. Will I still be living in this house in that year's time? Can I, can't I afford to do it? Actually, schools should, if they can, lean into that space if they possibly can, because most schools want to be here in 10 years' time, 20 years. They, they can usually afford, if they're brave and if they're lucky, to have a longer planning horizon. So if we, we guess what we did, we made the school carbon zero, way, you know, if they actually, we allow them to witness the pain, the struggle, the cost, the difficulties, how long it took to raise the money to do this one thing, or they come back, you've spent £120,000 on windows, you know, and they don't even notice that the windows change. So point it out. <laughs> Tell them some actual figures. Because... That is also educating them, is giving them a, a frame of reference of understanding that if they're not able to see that in their own domestic homes or their neighbours and the environment, they can see it at school or understand why things are going to take five years, not two years. It's still information that's informative, instructive and valuable. So the ground source heat pumps where you really need quite big spaces um, and, and they're getting better and better, aren't they, about what range of different temperatures and, and, and how fast, you know, you've got to adjust your expectations, how quickly you, a, house heats to, a house takes a heat up or cool down. There are behaviours which we need to rewire ourselves to be tolerant of in our homes, in our buildings, in our workspaces, if we're going to be absolutely optimal in our energy consumption. We don't have that luxury of, oh, I've arrived in a room, it's far too hot, open the windows, I've been running, I'm pouring the sweat, just cool it down five minutes in. It's very spiky, spiky up and down. 
that's really expensive way of using energy. And so, Helen, I don't know if it felt like with everything you were saying earlier about the the lessons and the, the experience of the workshops that you frame, it's not only telling people about content and language and other parts of the world and, and other people's experiences, but trying to create new habits of mind, new ways of thinking about what your decision tree might be about something because you now have a wider context. Mm, absolutely. So is, that, you know, is, is that a good place to focus our energies, even if it feels as if we're barely making a dent? It might be making a dent if we absolutely. give a generation those mindsets. Absolutely, Eve. And, uh, you know, I've just been hanging on your every word. I love everything that you're doing there. Particularly love that you're involving the children in trying to find solutions. I think that's absolutely fundamental. And as you say, modelling that behaviour and talking about what you're doing and, and having that intention and, and having that integrity to follow through, showing them that is all amazing learning for their future citizenship and leadership. And I love what you were saying before about COVID, about really understanding that my behavior has an impact and I think you're absolutely right you nailed that there it's a really good um you know way of looking at at the climate crisis because you know I said before it's an overconsumption crisis our behavior has an impact you know and this is one of the things that people don't appreciate something as simple as food waste accounts for around 10% of global emissions. It's massive. And it's something that's actually relatively easy to sort out. You know, it's something that if we could really all try and address waste in general, but just food waste, you know, just start with food waste. It's quite a simple message, really. I, I, yeah, I, I really, I think we actually need a public awareness campaign like we had, you know, Keep Britain Tidy, because people don't appreciate about, uh, you know, the fact that their consumption has an impact. Um, so it's not necessarily food waste, you know, ping, I got another um, text from my phone supplier, you know, would you like to upgrade your phone? No, thank you very much. My phone works really well. I don't know how to use a new phone when it arrives anyway, but no, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to upgrade my phone. I really don't want to have a further impact. Uh, it's a minor thing, but um the last 40 odd 30 odd years we've you know we've been very much living this linear economy it's low cost high volume nothing can be fixed it's all too difficult to be fixed it's throwaways it's throwaway goods and we can now get things in an instant can't we we can buy things we can have things delivered you know click of a button we don't think about our consumption so much because things are so cheap yeah, you know, we don't necessarily really feel like I need to buy this or or I, I need to spend all this money on this product because everything's so cheap and it is throwaway. And that's the problem. You know, we've got to that point where we can have whatever we want whenever we want it. And uh, it's quite difficult to come back from that. And going back to what I was talking about, the 1970s and 80s, we couldn't get things quickly. And, and but but we were used to that. So now we've got this um situation where really people have an opportunity to do something about the climate crisis but it does require mindset change and it does require behavior change and um, you know we we have a lot of of people and young people particularly who are suffering from eco-anxiety you know and that is growing 
understandably because the news is always so bleak um you know the press always highlights the negatives and one of the things that i'm really keen to do is highlight the good things that are going on um to try to um address that overwhelm you know and highlight how we can make a difference that is probably the number one message that i always want to get out you know the food waste thing you know 30 of Food industry, food, sorry, I don't want to point the finger at any particular industry, but food as a whole accounts for 30% of global emissions. You know, we actually can feed 10 billion people at the moment. Well, there are only around not even 8 billion people on this planet right now. And 50% of our global population lives in poverty. So, you know, they can't afford to buy food. So where's all that food going? It's generally us in the global north throwing it away um you know it, it's not hugely straightforward but a lot of people are buying too much food and it's going off in the fridge or they think it's going off and it's actually not but it's also restaurants and cafes you know we've got this society where we eat out a lot and, and obviously there's a lot of food waste from that which is challenging and supermarkets and things like that you know we've just got to this point where uh, we're just we're just over demanding and i t- i you know i talk about you know, simple supply and demand, obviously, for older kids, you know, if we keep demanding it, then it will keep being supplied. But we can turn that tap off. We are consumers. We're always told we've got power as consumers, aren't we? And if we stop demanding particularly low cost food, um, low cost products, and if we stop demanding so much food and we maybe do things like meal planning and we maybe take a smaller portion and and we we speak to the catering staff, you know, what you were saying about um, letting the children be involved in these um, solutions, Eve, you know, I, I always suggest that they go and sit down with the catering staff and talk about portion sizes because I've been to some schools where I've been given massive portions of food and I suddenly think, oh, my gosh, I don't actually can't actually eat all that, but... I'm here telling the children about, you know, encouraging them not to waste food. I can't throw it away. Then anyway, I really, I really find it difficult throwing food away. Um, so, you know, the food waste um, topic is really big and it's something that children can understand, you know, have a smaller plate of food and go back for seconds if you want. Chat with the canteen staff and ask if that's possible. Um, you know, reducing single use plastics, Ross, as you were mentioning before, Um you know, how can we get back to that point? Um, you know, I think I think quite a few schools were doing really well. I can remember visiting one school and they were saying, you know, they they'd done really well on 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 the single use plastics reduction. And then, of course, COVID came in and, and we had all these test kits and all the rest of it. But, you know, really thinking about single use plastics, you, you really don't need them. They are, you know, so detrimental to the environment and think about our travel you know how do we get around i know some schools are you know quite rural environments but you know if if we're going to a match can we share lifts you know can we take public transport and we think about how we travel because you know even an electric car not many people have got electric cars yet but you know if they're plugged in in a home that's powered by fossil fuels it's kind of not really going to help massively um, and so I think just thinking about clothing and how they can make a difference with their clothing, maybe thinking about secondhand clothes and things like that. So there's lots of ways that we as individuals can can really try and do something. And we can, you know, often we feel frustrated at governments for being too slow. And, and I think we do need to keep the pressure on governments big time. Um, and we have that opportunity too. But 
we can address our eco anxieties by knowing that you know we can be empowered and we can make a difference ourselves um, by um, understanding that our behaviour has an impact and we can really address that. Well, um, you spoke earlier, Helen, about news and and depressing news stories. Uh, there was, of course, a, a fairly famous um, news interview recently of, of Therese Coffey, the Secretary of State for the Environment. Uh, twice she's been in that role, actually, and she, she was asked a question on how perhaps she at home could do fairly simple things. Presumably the question was asked so that she could inspire those at home, children, you know, simple solutions. And um, she wasn't really able to answer the question. And, uh, and, and so in terms of solutions, y- you've talked about a, a few sort of light touch ones that I think actually have huge impacts and, and actually just having that thought process uh, is, is a really powerful thing. But um, to give specifics as to what is being done in a lot of schools, you mentioned food waste. I know that's, that's a big thing where I am at the moment. And um, in terms of what we do with the waste, there's there are so many things. You know, we we've got animals. We can reuse some of that food waste in that way. I appreciate not every school is able to do that. Um, and, and we farm the animals. And so ultimately they go into the food chain. Um, we've got a, a compost facility where we use some of our uh, food waste that we, we can't um, feed to the animals but of course actually um, not all food can be composted and mm. so what do you do with that well one of the big ambitions that I have uh, and in, in involving the children in the construction of this uh, although I'll have to look at the health and safety side is the creation of a, a methane production unit and I, I know this is being done on farms with slurry and, and actually importing food waste to create methane and wouldn't it be amazing if we were using that gas to cook the food and that it was a much more cyclical process. And so I'm sure that that's being done elsewhere. And I'd love to hear from people at home if that is being done. Um, and, and again, you know, our email address is the, the rest is education at gmail.com. We've, we've really enjoyed emails that have come in, but I think particularly anything practical like that, I would, I'd love to hear about. So I think we're, we are approaching the end and uh, we've clearly um, we're in a situation where we can't rely on on government, but but perhaps it's not entirely down to the government to drive this change. And I think we all recognise that schools are are vehicles for change. If only we can find that uh, that time and, and energy and resource to do so. And Helen, perhaps while you're busy persuading Gillian Keegan on the merits of embedding the Sustainable Development Goals into the national curriculum. What what would we advise, Eve, what would you advise school leaders to do in the meantime? Wow, Ross. OK, I'm going to try and keep this snappy and you can keep me on track. <laughs> I think there are three things that I have found really helpful. And if I just share these, maybe they'd be of help to um, others. One was listening to um, some Scandinavian and European education leaders who actually were phenomenally inspiring and probably a few years ahead of us in this country in many ways uh, in terms of how widespread some of this thinking is. And one angle in particular was futures thinking. And this was to 
come out of the worries of today, come out of the, as Helen articulated, you know, eco-anxiety, the slight feeling of doom and gloom, and are we ever going to climb out of this pit? Is is humanity ever going to coalesce in its intention powerfully enough to actually climb out of this up the you know up the edge of this squeeze slope or not? And imagine the thought experiment that we are in 2080. And instead of trying to think, how are we going to get to 2080 and what disasters are going to happen on the way? Just imagine you've got wings and fly through time and just sit in 2080 on the timeline and look back at 2022. And just as a thought experiment yourself, ask yourself to compare the differences on simple things of everyday life. Are we eating the same food? Are we living in houses that look the same, in your imagination, are we living in the same way? Do towns and villages and neighbourhoods feel the same? If not, in what ways are they different? In what ways is your mind and your imagination telling you that they're, what what is your subconscious offering up to you about this? What about schools? Are they the same? What's life expectancy? What's the demographic of the ageing population or the young population or that everybody's like middle population? What's the shape of the demographic pyramid of the society that you feel part of, the community that you feel part of? How long are people working? What does a working life look like? Yeah. Sorry, Ross, I could go on and get a bit carried away. But just think about some of those basic questions without um, judgment, without anxiety or feelings of responsibility that you have to solve anything just notice what your subconscious offers up to you when you ask yourself those questions through an exercise of futures thinking and I personally found that quite revelatory (laughs) and you suddenly start rushing back towards 2020 thinking right we can do this now we're going to do that because some of it actually is more positive than um, it feels from this side of that telescope looking out towards this distant part you know, with everything daunting in between. So that would be number one. Future, Do a bit of futures thinking, rather like mindfulness, incorporate this into your regular habits, weekly, daily, monthly. It's interesting and talk to other people about it, doing the same, your family members or your colleagues. Secondly, last point I would say, Ross, is some of the basics like the circular economy, what does that actually mean? Because I suspect the likes of the three of us live, breathe this and are so passionate about it, we sometimes make big assumptions that everybody else around us who is roughly our age or vintage or educated or, you know, in a certain status in life also knows and understands. And they don't (laughs) always. and some of them are a bit embarrassed to admit that they don't really know what it means. They've heard it, they've heard it with you, but they don't really understand it. So let's not make too many assumptions and put ourselves as the evangelists and the champions of this work a little bit out of the conversational reach of some of our peers who are wonderful, smart, solutions-focused people. Final point, we need to do it with joy. And Helen, this is why coming back to your kindness, your joy, you know, sentences phrases language like love like care like not just compassion tolerance but thriving and joy i think it was buckminster fuller who i invented i don't know invented graphene and and the geodesic dome if i've got this right or something like that anyway incredible guy he said that um you know things if you want to change the world 
the hair shirt approach of the misery, the deficit related language, give this up, do less of that, do less of the things that actually most people might find quite fun and like, is only ever going to get you so far. What you have to do is you have to invent the alternative universe. You have to invent the alternative that is better and more attractive so that the thing you're trying to get rid of becomes obsolete. So actually, I think there's also, Helen, as well as I agree with you 100%, raising people's awareness of just how serious a problem this is. We can't hide away from those numbers. We need to raise public awareness but I think we also need to get behind entrepreneurs, innovators, young minds, thinkers, risk takers, the makers, the makerspace, the, the solutions. Systems thinking. Do we develop enough of it? Systems thinking. You know, that is where the alternatives to the things we want to leave in our past as fast as we can are going to come from those people. And they need our love. They need our support. They need our encouragement. They need our investment. They need our championing. Because then we will all let go of what is holding us back and rush towards the things that are going to bring us re-emergence and hopefully a sense of renewal and optimism going into the future. Do you know, just when you were speaking there, I was thinking, actually, over the past three years, when trying to come up with different initiatives at, at this school, um, everyone I've spoken to is very much pro. And the more conversations you have, People want to be involved. People want to be part of it. And they'll go out of their way to help you. And, and I think actually just having the conversation is, is the key thing, isn't it? And, and, and as you say, make it fun. Make it about joy. Um, here, the pupils have built a farm using scrap from the estate. And, and it has been fun, you know. Um, and, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think we, we need to just almost live by example don't we in, in a way um rather than preaching helen any any final takeaways before we we close? oh yeah uh, well yeah i i love that invent the alternative universe um and this futures thinking i think it's fantastic i think key to it is uh you know giving the children the chance the opportunity to do that you know they they are the ones with the incredible ideas and the wonderful creativity, the kind of unfettered um, ideas. You know, there's there's no cynicism there. They've just got such fresh young minds um, and they can be really optimistic and positive and really creative. So I, I just love to let the kids loose on this futures thinking and think about, you know, what the world will be like in 2080. I think it'd be fantastic. Um, and I firmly believe, you know, if people don't know much about the sustainable development goals, you know, just Google them. Hopefully you're hearing about them. Just Google them. They're, they're very easy to find on the internet. And um, I think, again, we should let the children loose on those as well um, because they, they, they're so creative and they've got brilliant ways of, of incorporating them. Um, so yeah, I just think bringing them into the heart, they, they pull everything together in your, um, in your development plan. Um, and, and they cover the social and environmental challenges that we all need to be thinking of. So, uh, yeah, I just think just try and embed them as much as possible. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. Um, I think that's, that's a great point to end on. Obviously, there's, there's more that we can be doing. And, and I know that Aaron and David will be keen to, to discuss next steps. 
particularly focusing on on curriculum. Um, You've been listening to The Rest is Education. I'm Ross Borthwick. I'm Eve Jardine-Young. And I'm Helen Sundaram.